0: and thrust into the scary world of AIDS. Julie was told she had three to five years to live. Her diagnosis began a path of advocacy, faith, and positivity, despite her life's detour. Today, Julie works to make quality, affordable health care available to those in underserved communities. Through the 3030 Project, Julie has raised funds to build 30 health facilities in nine different countries. Julie is the mother to Grammy Award-winning musician Ryan Lewis and is the author of the book, Still Positive, a memoir. Welcome Julie thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me
0: Joan. So Julie I want to start off by going back to 1990 and talking about your diagnosis. What was it that you were experiencing at the time when you were diagnosed with HIV?
1: Well first of all I was actually infected with HIV six and a half years before I was diagnosed and I was experiencing nothing for most of that time but then in 1989 uh, and maybe in 1988, I just started getting weird symptoms. Um, I was very, very fatigued, had night sweats. I had swollen glands. I was getting, I'm already thin just by nature, but I was getting thinner. Um, I, you know, I would go, I went to several doctors actually, and this was like, you know, I'm exhausted. I, I have all these symptoms that I'm not sure why I have. And um, now you have to know, in 1988, I um, Ryan was born, and he's my youngest. So I had three kids in four years, which, you know, crazy woman. Mm-hmm. But um, the doctors would just look at me, and they would say, oh, you have those three kids, you're, you know, you're exhausted because, you know, you're so busy, because I was also working. And um, I just kind of knew in my gut that that wasn't it, you know, because I've always been a really active person mm-hmm. and I've always managed that well. It was, And so I started to think of things like chronic fatigue syndrome that doctors weren't actually recognizing very well in the late 80s as a real thing. Um. So when I got that call from my doctor saying that one of the people who had given blood for my blood transfusion had AIDS and I needed to go get a test, I just in my gut knew I was going to be positive because, you know, there hadn't been a a good explanation for the symptoms I've had.
0: Well, and back then, you wouldn't have been someone they would have even tested for AIDS because you weren't considered to be of high risk.
1: Kind of, that's true. Just if you would look at me and think, you know, suburban mom of three kids white woman, you know, whose yeah. husband's a minister, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but on my form, you know, they have you fill out forms of, like, your past uh, medical history, and on all those forms, I put that I had a blood transfusion in 1984, which was a clear risk for HIV at that time, right. but nobody would put that together because of what I look like and who I am, so... Right. So in some ways, my, one of my questions is like, why, you know, why didn't anyone
0: see that as a risk, you know, because it was a clear risk. So once you were diagnosed, what was your treatment protocol?
1: Um, well, when I was diagnosed, there was one drug, it had just come out of drug trials and that was AZT. And um, we, we uh, people with HIV and AIDS had to take it every four hours. So I was given like a little pill container that had A timer on it and every four hours it would beep and then you would take your medicine and it was very important to take it because um, you could actually develop drug resistance to the drug if you didn't take take it on time and have the right amount in your system all the time and that made me super sick I mean like AZT was our you know it's kind of this only hope drug but also oh my gosh it, it just had so much side effects Um, I was very ill.
0: Well, in addition to the side effects of the drug, how far did your disease progress? How sick did you become?
1: I finally got an actual AIDS diagnosis maybe two years in, uh, so like in 1992. And to explain what that means is um, if your T cell count went below 200 or if you developed an AIDS-defining condition, then you, at that point... um, they would say that you have AIDS, not just you were infected with HIV. And I ended up getting an AIDS-defining condition. My T cells never went below 200. Um, and so, a lot of why I was so sick was from the medication. Um, it wasn't necessarily from from the HIV. I mean, I was getting symptoms, but most. Of uh, my debilitating symptoms were from the AZT, just from trying to manage that.
0: What was life like for you being diagnosed <laughs> with that? Well, we,
1: um, we, uh, my children were two, four, and six years old when I was diagnosed, and we, uh, the week I was diagnosed, moved across Washington state to a different city. Um, so I didn't really know very many people which was actually to my advantage in some way because we didn't actually want to tell anyone and um, yes the fear was very real Um, and I mean just a couple stories from that I mean I went in with a strep throat and the nurse asked me to swab my own throat because she didn't want to get that close to me um, I went in with appendicitis to the emergency room, and 12 hours later, after my appendix had ruptured, they finally found a surgeon who was even willing to operate on an HIV-positive person. Um, you know, I <laughs> I went to the grade school where my daughter was in first grade to the HIV/AIDS um, like curriculum explanation for parents because it was required to have hiv education from fifth grade on in washington state and it was all going great like there was a nurse and a uh, administrator from the school who were explaining um, not just grade school but the whole protocol of fifth grade through 12th grade aids education and I'm I'm a health teacher. You know, that's what I went to college to be. So I'm sitting here. I'm kind of interested in what they're going to teach kids. And then at the end, this guy stands up, this medical doctor, and he says, I'm a medical doctor. And I think that the National Institute of Health and the CDC are hiding things from us. I think there's lots of ways you can get this disease. Like he just went on and on. And I'm looking at him going, oh, my God, I'm never telling any of these parents ever. Mm-hmm that I have HIV because it was such a risk for, yeah. uh, you know, for
0: my kids. When you experienced that, it, how were you able to keep from letting the anger consume you? I mean, I can't even imagine facing that type of situation. It, it's hard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's hard. But also, you know, as a mom, I mean, I just wanted to protect my kids. And so um, I I surrounded myself with a small group of people who I could just vent with and, um, and who I knew would support me. And, um, I mean, at some point you just kind of have to let the, um, the people who are, are ignorant or, um, afraid. I mean, a lot of it was just fear. People were afraid and, um, I did my best to kind of secretly try to educate people because I'm a health teacher, so that kind of was natural for me. And then I guess the other thing I did was I just kind of dove into denial. It's like after a while waiting around to die and just trying to manage this, it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot for your system and I don't really, I didn't really want my, my kids if I died to remember me as an angry mom or a fearful mom or a sad mom so part of that was just accepting on some level that I had this you know kind of death sentence and then on another level just pretending like I didn't (laughs) because I wanted I wanted to get joy out of every day and so I'm doing that denial getting joy and at the same time I'm writing my kids sort of letters to their adult self Mm -hmm. so they would know something about me so it was this weird place to live in so
0: you were told by the doctors Julie you have a couple of years to live and and you just said you know you're sitting around waiting to die but here you are 30 plus years later why do you think you're still alive well that's that's the million dollar question Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and did your faith play a role in this as well
1: this is a hard question to answer I um I think I was really lucky. I mean, just to be t- truthful, yeah. I have a brother who's also um, a 30-plus uh, HIV survivor. And so something in me thinks that our gene pool has, like, we have a strong immune system. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's two people <laughs> who got infected in the 80s who, you know, survived 30, almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, I have to think that we, ha- we started out with pretty strong immune system.
0: Do you think I some of it, Julie, was your I'm mindset? Because pretty... you almost made it sound like you didn't have time for this. You know, I have kids. I don't have time for this sickness. Do you think well, I that didn't. played
1: a role? I mean, I didn't. And I, and I still don't. <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet, I have to tell you, there were people just like me who had a strong faith, who, who lived their life to the last second, who died. You know, so it's hard for me to say, oh, I, you know, I'm a health teacher. I ate really healthy. I exercise. I mean, my my brother, I love him to death. You know, he smoked for years and ate donuts for breakfast and he's still alive. So I, I
2: yeah. have a
1: hard time, like, making a formula. But I do believe, I do have a strong faith, and I have always believed that if you wake up and you still hear you need to get out of bed and go do something positive. <laughs> and that, you know, I do think that doesn't hurt in your survival. But I also just know so many people who were like me who didn't make it. So there is a mm-hmm. luck factor
0: in life, you know. You There's never a randomness know. You to it. Know. Yeah.
1: There's a randomness
0: to it for sure. And so what did that experience facing your mortality Facing discrimination, facing all of those things, what did that teach you about life?
1: Well, I think what it taught me, um, especially as I, um, as you know, four four years in, we told our six year old, and you know, if you want your private information broadcast to the whole entire world, you just tell a <laughs> six year old because <Yeah. laughs> they'll pretty much share it everywhere and anywhere. It's kind of comic relief, actually. Um, And at that point, being a health teacher and and coming from a family of educators, I just have a big belief in sharing stories and educating. So I joined the Speakers Bureau for 10 years, which is a lot of the middle part of of my book. Um, And um, I I was taught so much by other people dealing with HIV um, about... Differences, like we were all very different, the people on the speakers bureau, and yet we became very close. And I guess I learned a lot about just making snap judgments about people, and I learned a lot about um, just humanity and how everyone deserves healthcare. Everyone deserves, you know, on our speakers bureau. The first question people would ask us when we were speaking, especially on a panel, was how were we infected? Because that could inform how they felt about us, you know. It was a real, um, we called it the compassion gradient. And because, like, if you're an innocent victim, like my friend's daughter, who, who was born with HIV and died when she was seven, oh, my gosh, poor you. But if you were a gay man or an IV drug user, people had judgments. And I guess I just really learned a lot about um, seeing people as, as all deserving of mm-hmm. compassion and care, no matter what their life was like. And I think now in this current um, sort of political uh, space we've been in, in this country, I feel like that's one of the most current things about the book I just read <laughs> right. because we've gone full circle where people people are choosing to be kind of ugly at times and really judge people and it's like you know that person deserves your care and your your listening ear and you know they're a person who um, may be different from you but maybe you have a lot to learn from that mm-hmm. person and from their differences and you know there's eight billion people in the world that, <laughs> We're all
0: different, you know, and at some point we're just going to have to choose to listen and care about each other. We're going to be in a really bad space. Well, and, you know, in the work that you're doing now, I've become a, a believer that when you look back over someone's life, when you when you when you're looking in the rearview mirror, and you can almost see everything you've experienced in life that brings you to a certain point where you are. Looking at your life, you are, you know you're a health teacher. You went through this horrific experience of facing your mortality and then discrimination. You've learned compassion. It's like everything brought you to the moment to create this organization that is doing so much good in the world and. You have had the opportunity to see firsthand the shortcomings in the in the medical community and the way people are treated, as you just explained. And so, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish with Thirty Thirty? What are, What are your goals, and, and are there things we can do to help you?
1: Well, the Thirty Thirty project um, it was a specific. We set a specific goal, and I like doing that because I'm not 100 percent healthy. So in 2014, um, we launched the thirty thirty project with the goal to fund um, 30 the building of 30 healthcare facilities around the world in areas that lacked healthcare access. And it was a time in my son Ryan's life um, with uh, when he was uh, in the group Lamar and Ryan Lewis. They were, um, you know, at the, at the height of their launching their group and um, receiving A few Grammys. So we had this bigger platform um, than than we had had in the past. And so anyway, and we worked, we're actually not our own organization. We're umbrellaed under the organization Construction for Change. And Construction for Change um, builds infrastructure for other organizations around the world working in areas of extreme poverty and need. And so our goal was to raise this money, find the organizations we wanted to build for, and then Construction for Change actually built the building, most of them. Um, so the 3030 30 project, uh, we had a five-year goal to raise our funds, which we succeeded at. Um, we had all the funds for the 30 facilities raised in 2019, which was a real blessing because then COVID hit and doing fundraising events kind of went away. Um, and then Construction for Change continued to build, and although they had some setbacks on timing during COVID, they're now um, constructing our last two of the 30 facilities, um, one in Kenya and one in India. So that project is really um, sort of sunsetting. Uh, it took 10 years. The The buildings will be done next year, so from 2014 to uh, 20. Um, 24. But when I wrote the book, I wanted to continue supporting uh, these organizations and other organizations that work towards healthcare access and equity. And so we're uh, we opened the 3030 Project Legacy Fund, and all of the proceeds from our book are going towards um, healthcare access and equity. So we're still supporting, really what we do is we support great organizations. A lot of them are smaller nonprofits um, who are doing awesome work, uh, either by, you know, providing access to, to um, infrastructure um, or just uh, giving them money to support their good programs. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing.
0: And so, Julie, what is your health like now? It's good. I mean, my health is good.
1: I still, you know, 39 years of having HIV in your system and taking over 60,000 pills to stay alive. You know, it does. (laughs) I'm not 100%, but I'm lucky and I'm alive. And um, gosh, you know, it's weird to be in my 60s. I mean, who who would have thought I have six grandkids? It's just, it's kind of crazy, actually. Every day I wake up and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm actually you know, have high blood pressure now and high cholesterol, like all the old people. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of hard to decide what's causing any of my problems these days. But, um, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful to, to be here and to be, you know, just enjoying, um, mm-hmm. my, my grandkids and my kids. And, you know, just, I don't know. I just feel really blessed everything at this point. It feels like icing on the cake in my life.
0: Um, yeah, and and so, Julie, what would you say to someone? You know, we've been talking about HIV and AIDS, but but everything that you've experienced really applies to anything we're going through in life. But what would you say to someone who is facing a health challenge and feels like there's no hope?
1: That it's a uh, that's a hard place to be, and I really sympathize with that person. I think any kind of diagnosis like that is shocking, and um, it takes like. Like it takes time to just even find your footing after you get a diagnosis like that. I would say um, don't be a surprise, no matter what it is, that some people just can't handle it. Like, <laughs> and that's okay. I never faulted the people who just didn't know how to engage in such a, a hard situation. Um, some of my best friends, really. And then you have the rare people who just sort of show up and are in it with you for the long term and embrace those people. I would say find a community of people you can trust and lean on them. I was super self-sufficient, you know, straight A student kind of person. And part of the hard part was just letting people help me. And that community, any you know, I had a few communities. I had all my friends with HIV who we could just be like super inappropriately pissed off around each other. And that was awesome, (laughs) you know, with no apologies and have the rudest jokes about HIV. And, you know, it was kind of nice. It was a great outlet. But then on the other side of that, I had these Bible study women who wanted to, like, support me and my friends, other women friends with HIV, and they would show up with the quintessential casseroles, you know, and also just take, our kids and babysit for free and all this stuff, which was also awesome. So I'm just, I guess with people, it's like create space for yourself so that you can find that spiritual or that, you know, positive grounding that you're going to need. And then, I don't know. It's like, give yourself a break. You will have good days and bad days and it's okay, you're gonna have days when you just don't get out of bed because you're so depressed. And it's like, allow yourself that and don't beat yourself up. It's like, it's it's a roller coaster. <laughs> Being sick like that, it's a roller coaster. It's everything from just managing, you know, horrible symptoms from medication, whether you're going through chemotherapy or, you know, a lot of medications have side effects. Um, and then just trying to figure out how to make the most of this time while also trying to be optimistic that maybe the doctors are wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> maybe you have more time. And and I know so many people who have beat the odds. It's like always give yourself that space to believe that maybe you'll be that 5% or that. or whatever, you know, do things that you want to do. But also if something, this is one, this is my one thing that I tell a lot of people who are sick just because you have to give up something, you know, in your life, whether it's, you know, you were a runner or you love to do a certain activity and you can't do it while you're sick. Never say it's forever. It might just be for now. Like you're giving it up for now, you know, and that always made me feel better. Um, yeah. When I felt like HIV had taken something from me, I would just say, well, that's just for now.
0: Well, and Maybe I have I'll a friend who, who was recently diagnosed with leukemia. And rather than saying, I have leukemia, because she said that makes her feel like there's an ownership. She says, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And it builds this wall between her and leukemia. Yes. I sometimes say I'm experiencing,
1: yeah. I you know, I'm experiencing HIV
0: or you're experiencing cancer right
1: now. doesn't right. mean it's forever, you right. know.
0: And that way you're not owning it. Right. Well, right. you're giving yourself space to experience something else to yeah. better. And once again, Julie's book is Still Positive, a memoir. Julie, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Um, well, as
1: far as the book goes, we have a website called Still Dis- stillpositive.com if you want to know more about the 3030 project and what we've done there and where we built and to see pictures and all that uh, it's 3030project.org we're also we push um, all of our just our different things we're doing at the moment whether it's you know a, a book launch event or I'm speaking at all of that we have on Instagram and we're at at book on Instagram and follow us there. And then you can get the book just pretty much anywhere um, that they sell books at this point.
0: Julie, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so happy that you were here and that you were able to share some of your story and your insights. I know that it's going to change so many lives. So thank you for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
0: An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself. Your products and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, it's your time to shine. I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training.
3: It's safe to say that most people are seeking fulfillment in their life, yet many are unsure of how to actually get there. It's especially true when we're constantly satisfying obligations and getting caught up in the details of daily life. Finding fulfillment is an intentional journey. When we find and follow our soul's longing, we open a direct path to feeling fulfilled. While there's not any specific formula that guarantees fulfillment nor a one-size-fits-all plan, there are important steps which help us pursue and achieve satisfaction and fulfillment. It doesn't have to be challenging and it can even be fun and it's definitely easier with consistent action. Here's one critical piece. Ask yourself if you're acting on this most days pursuing your passions. Our passions drive us and motivate us. When we pursue things that bring us pleasure and a sense of purpose, we can't help but feel more fulfilled. Passions are those things we feel excited about, the things that make us want to jump out of bed in the morning, and they're generally tied to our values and convictions, which means that they hold deep meaning and significance to us. Therefore, when we follow our passions, we're pursuing the things that mean the most to us. This gives our lives an overall sense of value Purpose and worth, which leads to greater fulfillment. So if you're looking for ways to find fulfillment and satisfaction in your life and you'd like to hear the rest of these steps, connect with me at Linda Mitchell coaching and An
0: invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself. Your products and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, it your time to shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash mediatraining. That's joanherman.com slash mediatraining.
3: This is WNYM, Packensack New Jersey, New York City.
0: to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The increase in the number of people starting their own businesses in the United States has surged. Joining us today to talk about how to get a running start with a micro business is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One-Person Business. In her new book, Tiny Business, Big Money, Elaine provides a guide to making it big while keeping things small. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Joan. It's great to be here. It's always great to reconnect with you. You know, I agree because this is such an important topic, particularly today, because as I said, there has been a surge in people starting their own businesses. What do you think, Elaine, has led to this increase? I think it's exhaustion from the pandemic. Honestly, I think a lot of people were in
2: work situations that weren't ideal for them. They weren't healthy for them. They maybe were working for a a boss who uh, didn't appreciate them, a company that was not compensating them appropriately for the cost of living and for what they were contributing. And it's almost like when you're at the gym and you are uh, doing push-ups, say, and your arms get to that point where you can't do another push-up. I think the pandemic was like that. People had to do so much extra work and so much extra emotional coping. They just couldn't cope with any um, any more discomfort at work. And they rethought their lives and they started experimenting with starting a small business, something that is hard to do when you have to commute. But when people aren't commuting, they're at home and they've gotten back an hour or two a day, they can very uh, privately try starting a business, see if they like it, and a lot of people are discovering that they're really good at it, and they had no idea that they were actually good at it. So then they can kind of take the ball and run with it and say, bye-bye.
0: And you know, like you're saying, Elaine, I think it gave us an opportunity to prioritize what's important in life. And, and maybe we said to ourselves, well, if I'm going to work 70 hours a week, I don't want to have to deal with someone governing my life and telling me what I need to do. I'm going to do it for myself. Exactly. I remember when I first became uh, self-employed, that was like in
2: 2007. And I had three children, then Uh, ages four and under. And I remember being able to go to a doctor's appointment without telling someone. And it was the first time I felt like an adult able to govern my own life, because normally I would have had to ask my boss if I could take a few hours off to take care of my children, which is a responsibility that I have as a parent. Um, and have to justify it. And I thought, wow, this is so liberating. I will never go back. And I never did go back, honestly, Um, because once you have a taste of that freedom and you have the confidence that you can earn a living on your own terms, why would you go back to that? Because you can still work with the exact same people as a freelancer in many industries or as a consultant and still do the same high-level work without a lot of the
0: hassle. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I could ever sit in an office from nine to five again, and just be that constricted after having my own business for 11 years. And you know, Elaine, we hear so much about people quitting their jobs at record rates. And that there are all of these open jobs that employers can't fill. Do you think the reason that that's happening is because so many have started their own businesses? I think it's a combination of factors. One
2: is there are folks who are extremely nervous about COVID. I think people are on a spectrum about that. And the people that are very nervous about it, if they if they are able to quit, maybe are saying, let me quit and start a business. I don't think it's because they started a business that they're quitting. I think it's because the stress of being in the workplace for them personally is too much. So maybe they have a health condition you know, that makes them much more vulnerable to COVID than, than um, someone else might be. And they want freedom to control their own health choices and their lifestyle choice. I think that's a very big factor. I think also there are a lot of inequities in the workplace um, for women and people of color, and they've had to live with it basically their whole careers. And they're saying now, okay, I have to deal with that. I'm underpaid. I don't have the same access to promotions. I have to maybe commute in on a um, on a subway where I'm a little nervous about catching COVID. And then I have to go into an office where maybe I can catch it. And the cost is just not worth it. And so they're more willing to take a risk because the risk of actually going into the office seems greater. And I think this is the first time we've ever had something like this where weighing the risks and benefits of not having a job actually seems less risky to people who are more risk averse in general. And I think that's very interesting because a lot of them are finding they actually have the capabilities to run a good little business and support themselves. And they probably never had to do those jobs for safety and security they just didn't build the confidence in themselves to do it because most of us didn't go to schools that encourage anyone to become an entrepreneur it's not really um, an academic discipline that's taught in in schools up you know in the k through 12 world it and Honestly, when I first um, started working in entrepreneurship journalism, I remember I ran the best business schools for entrepreneurs at Success Magazine. And a lot of the universities did not want to own that they were teaching entrepreneurship. It was not seen as uh, as legitimate a discipline as studying corporate business. And gradually it became widely adopted, and the top business schools embraced it. But I remember when I ran that ranking, it was very hard to get participation, even when I knew that they had a program. <laughs> and, and, and now they're all proud of it and happy to have it as an interdisciplinary area. But as a result, a lot of people have really not learned these skills, and they have to kind of learn it as they go along. And not everybody has the confidence that they can do it or the connections where they can ask other business owners and some people grow up in families, like when my dad was a civil servant, and there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. And interestingly, my brother and I are both self-employed. But you have to know where to get the information to um, actually do it because it's something where you you have to tap into the collective knowledge. So I think what's happened now is just it it was kind of sink or swim for a lot of people. And they just did it and they found they, they could really excel at it.
0: I agree with you because if my father were alive now when I started my own business, I think he probably wouldn't have understood it or he would have been extremely nervous for me because that wasn't his frame of reference. He came from being a company person. and so you know, like you were saying, they may not have seen the opportunities that we have, but hopefully we'll be passing this on to our children and our grandchildren. And so in your new book, you write about a micro business. How is a micro business defined? What does that mean?
2: There, there are a lot of different ways experts define it. But basically, these are uh, I define them in the book as up to 20 employees. In the first book, I looked at non-employer businesses. These are businesses that have no payroll. They might have a team, you know, of like uh, a bookkeeper and an accountant that help the entrepreneur, but basically they have no employees and they're, they're solopreneur businesses, or maybe a couple um, that would be a non-employer business too, or two business partners um, where they have no employees. But once you go to payroll, that's what I'm writing about in this book or people that have such a formalized extended team of contractors that they're a quasi employer business. So uh, they might, say they have a team in the Philippines, which is very common for U.S. businesses, they don't technically have to make the the workers employees, and a lot of times they don't because it's just easier in terms of the setup, Um, but they function as employees. That's what I'm looking at, and there is a big change in mindset that is required when you're managing a team because you have to convey the purpose of the business, how you want things done, how you want customers to be served and that sort of thing. And that's a challenge for a lot of people who have been solopreneurs. I just heard it over and over again. Actually, as I I did an updated edition of the million dollar one person business about a year ago at this point. And when I spoke to people, some of them had, had grown the business a little bit and they were talking to me about that very factor how it's a whole different skill set when it's not just you or not just you and you know once a year you talk to your accountant. And they had to raise their game as, as leaders because like it or not, even if they wanted to be solos, if they're relying on other people's help, there's a big communication uh, requirement for that. And we can all get better at that. And so that's what I looked at is, you know, how are they organizing these teams? They like to travel light. They don't want to be a formal corporation. And what I found was they're using very interesting methods. Some people have no meetings, they manage the whole team on Slack or by, you know, texting and email and all kinds of uh, different methods than you would be taught in business school.
0: Elaine, if someone has a successful one person business, how does that person know it's time to hire employees? And is there a benefit to doing so rather than working with consultants? Usually that point comes when you start noticing slippage in the business.
2: You're just not able to make deadlines or, you know, you get sick for one day and the whole thing starts falling apart. That's usually a sign that you're maxed out and that you don't have enough um, backup in place in the event something goes wrong. Because sometimes things do go wrong Uh, um, and employees are usually best when you need them there consistently. Sometimes employees might have slack periods where you know maybe the business isn't coming in. That happened with a lot of businesses during the pandemic. It would have to be worth it to keep them on payroll consistently anyway, despite any slack period. That's one sign that it's still worth it, even if you have to pay them some weeks when it's slow. Um, because it is a big cost. Usually it's the biggest cost in any business, next year, maybe real estate, depending on what part of the country the business is in, um, and and so you 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 also have to make payroll, right? That's a legal requirement. You can't just not pay people because you're short on cash. So you have to do a financial analysis too, and one and look at whether you have the cash flow to support paying each employee consistently every month or every week, depending on how you structure
0: it. I have met so many people, Elaine, who are very good at what they do. They really are leaders in their particular field, and yet they can't get their business to a certain higher income, and and they're baffled by it. Like, they don't know what they're doing wrong. So what if some of the people you've interviewed told you about what they attribute their successes to? Like, how does one person make that high income while somebody equally as good never generates it? I think one of the things that holds people back is staying in the weeds too much and not
2: being willing to trust either automation, outsource services, or other people. And in, in the book, I look at this continuum that people can go down. Usually the first best step, if you feel like you're not maxing out your revenue, is to take time to look at how you're spending your time during the week. I, I work with a business coach, and he had me do this. And You literally create an Excel or a Google sheet and put down what you do every hour of the day and take a look at where are you spending time on tasks that could be done with technology if you took the time to set it up, um, an outsourced service, or by somebody else. Usually technology is the least expensive, lowest risk. Um, way to offload things because if you don't like an app, you're not having to fire the app, right? <laughs> you just stop paying for it and discontinue it. Um, but the the others take a little more um, thoughtfulness because you, if you're bringing on a contractor or an outsourced service, you'll have to vet them and make sure that they're up to your standard, um, that you're comfortable with what their processes are. Sometimes their processes can be so elaborate that it's not worth it to work with them. Um, And then when you get to that point where you really need a contractor constantly or an outsourced service constantly, that might be the point at which you consider bringing someone in-house. I would say the first step is if you're not maximizing revenue, they almost all use automation. I did a survey and where I surveyed the entrepreneurs in the book about their best practices, and all of them, 100% of the businesses I surveyed, it was – Forty-nine businesses use contractors, ninety percent use automation. Um, and, and, and that's helped you a lot. You know, they're not doing all the work of the business themselves, even if they're just, you know, a two person business. Um, they're they're relying on somebody other than themselves or something other than themselves. And in, in um the chapter set yourself up for success, I look at this whole continuum, Raj Srivastava. Is a tech entrepreneur who, who creates um, reports for people that do a certain kind of investing. And his business is completely automated. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then I go through people that... Have um, a combo of automation and contractors or contractors plus employees, et cetera. So you can see what it looks like in, in different permutations and figure out which one is right for you. But it's basically dip a toe in the water and then see, okay, did this free up my time so that I can now go out and win new business or I can think more about strategy and R&D and the things that really – help me get to the next level in the business. And sometimes there are other factors at play. It might be that you're underpricing your services or your product and you you need to increase your prices Um, and that alone will propel you to the next level. I've seen that happen a number of times and um, that's something to really look at objectively. That's where a business coach or a peer coach or somebody at SCORE where the SBA can help you to um, analyze your practices. Because a lot of times when you start a business, you feel lucky to have any customers at all. I think back to my first year in business, even though I hired freelancers and I knew what the going rate was, somehow I felt like, even though I was an experienced journalist, I, like, I was a new freelancer and I had to start all over again. I got out of that after about a year, but <laughs> right. I see that happen a lot. You just feel like it's different when you're in business for yourself. And after taking on some very unprofitable projects, I, I started changing my rates and making sure that I could run a sustainable business because you're honestly not doing anyone any favors if you underprice your product or service because you will go out of business and then you won't be there to help anybody and your customers won't even want you to undercharge they they like fairness. A good customer would like you to be charging what your product or service is worth. That's another thing that I learned. Um, and so that that's another low-hanging fruit for a lot of new and even experienced entrepreneurs. Sometimes right now, for instance, costs have gone up a lot because of the supply chain crisis. And uh, like if you own a restaurant or if you own a business that uses paper or other things that are – trapped on ships out at sea somewhere because <laughs> the prices are high and you may have to raise your prices. And people don't like doing that. They feel a lot of pain asking for more money. But if you gradually um, grandfather in higher prices, maybe keep the same prices uh, in a service business that you had, or you put up a little sign if you have a restaurant that you have to pass along some of the costs. People do understand they're not going to, coming to a restaurant because the price of one dish went up by $1. Even though we have that fear that you'll go out of business if you do these things, it's usually never realized.
0: Elaine, if someone wants to get started on the journey to business ownership, what are a few of the best tips that you can offer?
2: I would start with what you know, because you're probably an expert in it. If you have a job working for someone else, you might have spotted a little opening in um, the marketplace for something that you needed. I'll give you an example. There were um, two fellows, Jason Martin and Patrick Falvey, who started a business that I wrote about called App Evolve, and they were software developers. And they noticed um, there were not a lot of apps that were compatible with Salesforce at the time, that um, customer relationship management software. And so they um, they went out on their own and they started developing those types of apps, but then they found there were um, demands for other types of apps and they expanded. And now their business has, they, first, it was just the two of them. They started it on Upwork and now they're at the stage. They had just hired their first employee in admin. Um, they're in Boise and um, and they had gotten an office in Boise and were um, planning to expand and uh, build a team. But they had a team of contractors that they relied on—a a, quite a large team all over the world. Um, so th- that's an example of just noticing something on your job where there's there's an opportunity to add value, and, and that's what it is about: bringing something that people need or or want, or, or that gives them pleasure. All of those things are valid reasons to start a business. Um, And then if you're doing a service business, a lot of times start with your network. I did a LinkedIn post once. I'll have to resurface it because it was just so informative what people posted where I asked um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give someone who lost their job and had to start a business today. And they said, go to your network and tell people you're in business, basically. But that came up over and over again. And um, a lot of the people who did service businesses in this book and my first book their first customer was their old company. Interestingly, interestingly, they, they didn't burn bridges and they weren't too proud to say, you know what, I put up a shingle. And if you need any help, no matter how small I'm here for you, because there's, there's something else that happens as soon as you have business and you start getting booked, you and I were talking at the beginning of this call before we started about being really busy. It does give you confidence that you can, um you can turn things down that aren't a good fit, that you can charge the right prices if your dance card is full. If you don't have any business, it's harder to have those conversations where you're talking with a new customer and they say, so what other projects have you been working on? They don't want a whole roster. They just want to hear about one. If you have none, you won't feel confident. Um, what One thing that you can do if, if you don't have any is to do some volunteer projects. And use your professional skills. Don't just do any random volunteer project. Do something where, um, like for instance, if you're a marketer, maybe there's a nonprofit in your community that needs marketing help. So if you have those conversations, so, you know, what are you working on lately? You could say, I'm doing a report on blah, blah, blah for this nonprofit. You don't have to say that it's a volunteer project because you never would say that if it wasn't a volunteer project, you just, it's just a project you're working on. That gives you the momentum and it shows the client that you are sought after professional and, and that will help you start picking up speed in the business.
0: The book is Tiny Business, Big Money, Strategies for Creating a High Revenue Microbusiness. If you'd like to get more information about Elaine and her work, you can visit elainepofelt.com. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. I really look forward to the next time you come back. You are such a wealth of information, and I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, Joan. I always enjoy connecting with you, too. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.